0: Good morning. How are you? Alright. Joel is where we're headed. If you need a Bible, there should be one on the chairs in front of you. And uh, the page numbers on those are like mine, so it's like page 760. If you don't have something to take notes with, as Pastor John said, there's a note, little note sheet there in front of you that'll help you at the end of the message. Like he said, we'll do a, a one takeaway. Uh, we moved Joel up. I made a a bit of an audible last week to to move where we put Joel in the timeline, and I'll try and explain that in just a second. It actually says 500, that's a typo on my part. We're aiming at 600, but Joel is really hard to know where he fits. Um, There's nothing really like a lot of the other prophets, right, when they right, like in the third year of this king. You're like, perfect, I know when that is, right? Joel doesn't do you that. So he does write to Jerusalem, to the folks in Judah in Jerusalem, so likely before the destruction by Babylon, so I would put him probably close to 600. Now there's some hints that he may be writing on the other side of it. I don't think that's true, but it leaves us with a lot of questions. Now, we put it here, um, because the message fit really well with what we've been talking about. So no, ma- no matter where Joel actually fits in the timeline, his is, again, just a little harder to gauge. There's less like data points in the book to show you where it fits, right? And so in that, we kind of take what we can infer and figure out where it might fit in a timeline, But it fits as he's been talking about the day of the Lord. So we spent time on the day of the Lord last week in Obadiah as God is calling out to the people of Edom for persecuting the people of Judah and Jerusalem and says they don't stop, that he is going to destroy them. And then he talks about that day that he destroys them and then the day of the Lord where he leans forward into a future time when all of human life or all of this world or all of the way things we know them are completed, are ended, and those who are in Christ move on into eternity with Jesus, and those who are not are judged. And so the day of the Lord has been a theme, Zephaniah, Obadiah, all, the, all the, that we've talked through. And so in the same way, Joel talks about that, but his has a, bif- a bit of a different uh, ending or conclusion that I wanted to look at today. So the day of the Lord is this prophetic look at complete judgment of this sinful world, right? Judged either as completed or you'll be found in Christ. One of those two things. But then on the way to that, there are things that take place. And it could be a day of judgment like Joel's going to talk about or like Obadiah talked about for Edom last week, or it could be just the end of our life, right? At the end of our life, that stops our opportunity for change, or for repentance, or for maybe pursuing Jesus. If if we come to the end of our life and if we have not made those decisions, the, the time is up. And so the day of the Lord in its grand, complete fulfillment is still yet to come, but the judgments that many of these prophets talk about happen in time with the people, and it's a reminder that a day will come when our lives will end. And how will that look? Where will we be when that takes place? So I'll give you a main idea for today, a call to repentance. God's people are a covenant people whose relationship is defined by God. Violating violating that relationship, meaning disobedience, deserves discipline from God. So let me say that. If we are God's people and God has designed how we relate to him, if we do it any other way, we deserve discipline, is that fair? Right? Today's catechism, we do the fourth and the fifth commands. Fourth is the Sabbath. The fifth, you're welcome parents, is honor your father and mother, right? When we don't honor our father and mother, when when children disobey parents, they deserve discipline. Fair? Discipline should always be restorative in nature. Discipline isn't just me taking out my anger, or a mother or father taking out their anger, or God taking out anger. When it's to our children, it's about restoring them, right? It's about getting them back on track, and that's what God is doing here. So we deserve the discipline. The last line says, repentance and obedience brings God's blessing back to his people. I want you to just give you this visual. I just want to give you something. She's always helped me. My throat's all jacked up today, so let's hope it works. When God's people are doing what God has called them to do, and they're, they're following God, they're being obedient, and, and they're doing the things, they're, they're pursuing God in worship, they're, they're a people who, who value justice, and doing right, and caring for one another, and, and loving God, and loving their neighbor. You just imagine God's hand over them, protecting them, caring for them. Whether that means providing the rain to grow the crops... Well, that means keeping the the people that don't like them away. Whatever it means, it's just you can imagine God's hand on them. And then as they begin to disobey and God calls them to repent, Repent's just a word that just means turn away from disobedience and turn to obedience, right? When they are doing what God is calling them not to do, or they're not doing what God is calling them to do, you can just imagine God lifting his hand of blessing off them. And then warning them and calling them back. And if they do, he blesses them. And if not, he just lifts his hand off and says, okay, well, then you do what you want to do. You want to worship other gods? I'll take a step back. You want to worship me? I'm here. Now, I want you to just think through this as today the prophet is speaking to God's people. They've been hit and miss. Jerusalem is only around because They listened to a warning and turned, gave them another 20 years. Eventually Babylon will destroy them. So Joel chapter one, verse one, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So two things. This is how the book opens. Joel doesn't tell us when, right? But here's who's writing it. God is speaking through Joel. He's a prophet. That means he's not making it up. It means God has told him what to say. And he says, listen up or hear this. Hear, listen. And So it doesn't just mean that you should take in the noise audibly. But hear means you should, you should hear, receive, and you should act on it. Right? We don't want our kids just to hear us, but to hear and respond and to obey and to learn and to grow and to mature. That's what he's calling them to. And then he says this, tell your children of it and that your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Now here's what it doesn't say. Bring your kids to church so some kind volunteer can tell them what God is saying. Right? Go, go bring them to school, Christian school, so they can tell them about God. Who is responsible for telling them what God is saying? The parents are. You teach this to your children. Then they will teach it to their children. Then they, their children will teach it to their children. God bless kind volunteers in children's ministry. But that's why we're doing what we're doing. Because it's not my job to raise your kids. It is my job to partner with you so that you can disciple your children. Right, so he's saying, listen, have you ever heard this? Has such a thing ever happened? He'll explain what that is in a minute. But he says, I want you to listen, I want you to obey, and I want you to teach your children this lesson. Right, that's why we do family integrated worship. That's why our kids are with us. Do they understand everything I'm going to say today? No. Do you understand everything? Maybe catch everything in every message? Probably not. That's okay. Here's what they do understand. They understand that you're reading, that you're taking a note, that you're offering or you're praying or whatever. They do understand what you're doing and they they learn from you and they grow from you. And then they get a little older and they take bits and pieces in, right? And they start to do their notes as they watch you do your notes and, and they learn and they grow. And then this is their church, not just their parents' church. Tell your children, he says. Let them tell their children. And then those children will tell their children, verse four, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. The whole prophecy of Joel is about these locusts that are going to destroy functionally Jerusalem. Right, all of Judah exists in its capital city right now in Jerusalem, and a few surrounding areas. It's mostly Jerusalem. And there's this prophecy that locusts are going to destroy them. So a locust, because I wasn't sure, I googled it, it's a grasshopper, right? I mean, functionally, that's what it is, right? And, and, and they eat the, the food that people grow. So if you grow grain, or if you grow corn, or if you grow apples, or whatever you grow, right? Right? that they will just destroy those things. And, and they, they're, for whatever reason, I was reading a little bit on this, that sometimes they swarm. For whatever reason, sometimes they will just gather up, just gang up, right? Throw on their red bandanas and just go to town, right? Like they just go and destroy, right? And so God has used this often as plagues, like back in Egypt, right? They're a plague of locusts, okay? And well, God is saying the same thing again. Now, It could be literal locusts, and there is a legit solid reading where it's it's legitimate locusts coming in to destroy their crops and their land. And if that's true, what it is, is God's discipline on them for their disobedience. So God getting their attention by taking their abundance away. There's another faithful reading of this where it's a destroying army like Babylon coming in to conquer Jerusalem. Honestly, both interpretations work. And no matter which direction you go, they're both God's discipline on the people for disobedience, right? For not repenting, for not listening. So whether it's complete and utter destruction by an army, where Babylon comes in and does conquer them and, and takes, those, takes away the, the exiles into Babylon, if it's that, great. If it's a, a locust destruction, same idea. One is more temporary, one is more permanent, to be fair. Same meaning. So you can go either way. And I think think the book of Joel gives reasons to kind of go down both roads. So I'll let you choose. Again, the message stays the same. Verse five, awake you drunkards and weep and wail. Now let's pause just for a second. We'll read that in a minute. The image of drunkards is not talking about the sin of drunkenness. It's calling them sinful drunk people, right? But it's not about a drinking sin. What he's doing is he's using the image of drunks who are celebrating because the land is giving them so much, whether that be grapes or whatever they would do, right? He's talking about people who take what God has given them to excess in sinful ways. So don't limit this to the sin of drunkenness, right? Do you hear what I'm saying? He's going to call them to be people who lament. Now, he doesn't want drunk people to lament not being able to get drunk. Fair? Fair. So I didn't want this to be confusing. So he's he's teaching, he's using a metaphor. He's going to give three of them right now on why and how the people of God should lament. So here's what he says, verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down, and their branches are made white. So the idea is, wake up and lament that you have no more vine or fig to make wine from. That's what he's saying. Like You've been living off this joy, the joy that God has provided because you have plenty. And because you have plenty, you've been ignoring God. Now I want you to lament like a drunk that can't get his... They can't get his drink on, right? I mean, like, that's, I want you to lament. Like, I'm taking everything away, he says. And he uses some language like, a nation has come up. That sounds like an army. Well, its teeth are like lion's teeth. Well, it kind of sounds like locusts. I mean, again, both ways it could go. But the metaphor is, I want you to lament that you're losing everything. So lament means mourn or weep or grieve. I want you to be sorry, sorrowful, painfully sorry for what is going on. But the catch here is, he's not asking them to be sorry for what they lose, for the losing of the produce or the fruit or the whatever it might be that they're growing, the grains. He wants them to lament the state of their faith. Now, if I were just to just ask you guys, we just sit around after church and I was just going to go around and I'm like, hey, what do you think? And what do you think? And what do you think? And, what do you think? What, What's wrong with what's wrong with the, the nation today? Or what's wrong with our, our city or what's wrong with our community, what's wrong with our state or what's, whatever? My guess is, and this is, I'll say based in the fact that we talk a lot, right, that the answer's going to be things that happen out there, right? what they do, what people does, what, what people do in English, there you go. Anyhow, but what, what people do wrong or, or you know, you know there's just this. There's this need in the community. I remember talking to somebody here a year ago, just, oh, I wish we could have prayer back in school. Side note, I don't want anybody in a public school ever leading our kids in prayer, right? To whom are we praying at that point, right? But when the problem's always out there, oh, culture this or this, we're missing the message. You see, and it quickly drifts into politics, right? Well, if we could just vote this guy in or this guy out or whatever the answer is, right? It's not what God is saying. He wants us to lament the state of God's people. So for us today, the sad state of Christianity in America should be lamented by us, right? The fact that COVID hit three years ago and our nation went through something we've, all of us in the room have never gone through before. And there was an opportunity for the church to be unique and distinct, a place of hope, a a place of difference from the rest of the world or from the rest of culture the rest of the country. And instead, like within minutes, we were just as politicized and and divided. See, the state of the church is so broken. And that's what God's leaning into. It's the state of the people who should be the people of faith that are so broken. Verse 8. He says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Now, this image is about a young woman who's been promised a husband. And once you've been promised a husband in this culture, once you're what we would call engaged, you're committed. It's as good as married, even though you're not married yet, okay? And then that guy dies. Now, remember, in this culture, also women don't run businesses or own the land. That really, they, they live first in their father's home, And then when they get married, they live in that home. And and then if he dies, typically sons run the family business. And so it's saying, lament like a young woman who had everything in front of her and then lost it all. Here's what he goes on to say, verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. Notice he pivots back to their worship, their faith. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. He's calling us to mourn or lament our hope for the future like a young woman who becomes a widow suddenly. Verse 11, he says, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. In other words, like farmers, right? Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dry up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. He says, you should lament that God has taken away his blessing from you, right? So they are to mourn that the, the, they place so much value on pleasure. It's kind of like they worship the things God has given them, but not the, actually God himself. They're to mourn that they value their future so much that when something changes about it, they are destitute, that they are heartbroken. And they're to mourn that they value their self-sufficiency so much that when it's removed, they feel like they've lost everything. And so in all these, there's this, there's this undertone of them not valuing their faith enough and basically overvaluing things of earth, or things of this world. So modern American Christian, Christianity needs to hear this as well. We value all the same things. Pleasure, future plans, income, self-sufficiency. All these things we value to the point of losing sight of the value of our faith. All of those things, we, we'll find all those things that, that, that education or work or sport, all these things that will pull us out of church, things that will eventually die with us. You can't take your baseball trophy, you can't take your baseball, you can't take your boat, you can't take anything with you, right? You can't take your vacation home, you take your faith with you. And yet, our call, and again, I'm, I'm not saying Americans, I'm not saying Southern Californians, I'm saying us in the church, you and me. Yes, the church in America, but all we've got is us. We value so many other things and allow them to pull us out of the very thing we need, the gathered people of God. We value this so little that we allow other things to pull us out. So a plague of locusts is coming to the people. Whether it's destruction literally by locusts or or by an army, the same message is true. They're going to lose everything. God is causing it. God has been calling them to change. God has been calling them to return over and over and over again. Even if you follow this timeline, and again, I think I'd put Joel right around the time of Obadiah, but we started about 900 years before Jesus. We're somewhere 600, 500, somewhere before Jesus, hundreds of years. And this existed before that. These are just the minor prophets. Hundreds of years of calling God's people to return to him. From the split in 722, when the northern and southern kingdom split, there's never a good season for Israel. They have 20 kings in that era before they're destroyed. None of them are any good. They all worship other gods. In the southern kingdom, there's another 20 kings. It lasts over a larger span of time. Eight of them actually try and follow God. Twelve don't. So it's been this back and forth between God through his prophets to the people sometimes allowing them to suffer to gain their attention and call them back. This is one of those moments. He's saying, here's what's going to happen because you haven't listened. And his call to them is to lament, to grieve over the lack of faith and worship and relationship they have to God. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament. Sackcloth would be this way they would dress when they were mourning. It's not the same. But the closest thing we have is typically... People who are grieving wear black, right? Might wear black to a funeral. I know we've even lost that practice a lot today. This is literally putting on this sackcloth, this kind of miserable outfit. They would put ashes on their head. They would dress in their mourning attire, if you were mourning with like grieving attire, not mourning like early in the day. Right? And so put on a sackcloth and men, O priests and wail, O ministers of the altar. Notice he leans in to their worship. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So now he's speaking to the faith leaders, the pastors of their community, like you should lament the lack of spiritual fidelity and faithfulness that the people have. See, the priests in this context not only led the worship service like this, but they were responsible for instructing the people on how to follow God. And so it's like, this message that we'll do that's just about an hour every Sunday, that's like one thing I do throughout an entire week, or all three of our pastors and all our, all our ministry staff. Most of our time is spent teaching you all, the people of God, how to follow God in different, different settings, community groups, discipleship groups, whatever. And that's what we're saying. You should lament that the people are not doing it. That the people are not worshiping God, that they're not being faithful to God, they're not listening when God calls them to change and to return. And so now comes this judgment, this discipline. So I wrote these things down. So today, here at Generations, here's our tendency. We tend to go to church when we're not otherwise committed. We go to church, when we don't have other plans. We give to God financially when we feel like we have enough to give. We gather midweek with families when there's no sports or activities to pull us away. We read the Bible when convenient. We pray when we need something. But we don't lean into God because he's God. We don't value the church community because it's the community, the family of faith that God has given us. We bounce around from church to church never plugging in and committing, never becoming a member of a local body, never saying, you know what, I'm in, this is my family, highs and lows, thick and thin, until they do something crazy and unbiblical, I'm here. Because we treat this like a consumer thing. You know, Stater Brothers quit carrying what I like, I'll go over to Albertsons. That's not the church. See, we need to fix this, we need to figure this out. We need to plug in and say this is family. So here's a note for you, what the church should lament. Followers of Jesus should mourn the sad state of Christianity more than the culture we live in. If we looked more like Jesus, then maybe the culture around us would change. If we looked more like Jesus, maybe the world around us would see Jesus and want to change. But see, our sad state is that we talk about them rather than focusing on how far away we may be. Verse 14. So how does God call them to change, or how does God call us to change? Listen, verse 14, consecrate a fast, he says. So fasting, if you're unfamiliar, fasting is denying yourself food in order to lean into prayer, scripture, worship. So maybe you take a 24-hour fast, you don't eat, and you pray more, read scripture more, gather with others, worship more. So he says, consecrate a fast, call a fast. Call a solemn assembly, get them together. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. Cry out to the Lord, cry out, pray. So what does God call them to do? He calls them to gather together and fast and pray. But I want you to hear this. The first part's super important. He calls them to gather together. He doesn't call them to fast and pray at home. He doesn't call them, hey, you guys should pray more in your houses when you have a time. He says, you guys need to get together and collectively and corporately, when I say corporately, I don't mean business, I mean the body, the corpus, the body, the church, corporately should fast together, pray together, should seek God together. See, we don't understand this in our modern day culture. We think of ourselves as having this individual faith that Jesus is my personal savior, words that don't exist in scripture, just for the record. We miss that we are called to be a gathered community. So what does he tell them to do? Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the people. Get together and fast and pray. Get together, return to God. Get together, worship together in a sacrificial way. So we pray every Sunday in service. I've never really had a complaint or a critique about it from a guest. I've never had a non-believer complain that we pray. A lot of church folks are uneasy with the five minutes that we'll spend in prayer. That should be a problem. Get together, he says, and fast and pray. That Alex will lead us through prayer each week and go through different things. Today, how about, how about let's spend a little time in worship? How about some time in confession? How about some time thanking God for all that God has done? And then how about asking God for whatever it is we need? I think last week it was praying for what we may need and praying for others. I think before that we spent some time praying for those we know that, that don't know Jesus yet. And, and we go through this, and, and, and it's, it should be such a regular part of our gathered time. If it's an issue, well, the issue is that we're broken then. The issue isn't that it's prayer. Call them together fast and pray. That should be the most natural thing. Right, Scripture says over and over again, my house will be called a house of prayer. And the modern day church is anything but a house of prayer. We should hear this. And this should just, this should cause us to mourn our spiritual condition. Verse 15, it says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the claws. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of the cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of the sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field plant for you because the water brooks are dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So there's this judgment for disobedience. It's possible that locusts have come in and and killed everything, and it's dried up, and in the heat, you have wildfires like we see going on, like the crazy wildfires in Maui right now. Uh, We have them in California all the time, right? Could be that the armies have come in and burned the cities and burned the little places to the ground. But whatever it is, it's just so devastating. It's a complete lost for them. Joel chapter 2, verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion. That's another word for Jerusalem up on the hill. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains with, great, with a great and powerful people. There, their like has never been seen before, or like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. So the day of the Lord is coming. Now again, last week we spent a lot of time on the day of the Lord. You can go listen to that. It is this final day, but there's these smaller versions of it between here and there, right? So let me make up something. I'm not saying this is true. I'm just going to make this up. So say that in Southern California we were at one point, and we were at one time really a uh, a home for Christianity. More movements for Christianity have started out of Southern California than uh, just than you can really think of, like Calvary, Vineyard Movement. I mean, the, the Pasadena Street Movement 100 years ago. I mean, like, lots of movements have started out of Southern California. And so there's, there's an idea that at one point that we definitely had a spiritual foundation. And we'd never say we were a Christian nation, a Christian state, a Christian whatever. L.A. County's never been a Christian county. But there's definitely been kind of a surge of Christianity at times. But let's just say that because that is not true today and because that really the people of God, even in the churches that are gathered this morning, are not really doing what God is calling us to do. God says, I'm going to send a judgment on you. And the day of the Lord will look like this. And that day is limited maybe to us. But it's a glimpse of the final The day of the Lord. You with me? So I'm going to destroy Southern California for unfaithfulness, which, (laughs) glad isn't true, probably would have happened already, right? But it's a foretaste or a foreshadowing or a partial fulfillment of what will ultimately happen one day when all of this world is destroyed, where evil is defeated, and where if we are in Christ, we will live forever. Verse 3. Fire devours before them and behind them the flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. He's like, you have a land of plenty right now, like the Garden of Eden. Now if you go back to the Garden of Eden, there's all kinds of fruit and everything is good to eat and, and it all looks pleasing and, and, and it's just abundance, right? That's just the word I keep coming with, just abundance, right? He says, it looks like this, but there's a fire coming and destroying it all. Here's what I want you to hear from this. You can plan and you can live towards abundance. I want to have an abundance of money, an abundance of car, abundance of house, abundance of food, abundance, of whatever. And you can actually have that and God can take it away. Right? God can just take anything away. And, and I would say God will if God needs to get your attention. Right? If, if this has become your idol and the way we live, just look at how we orient our families. It's towards this more than it's towards God. And God says, listen, I will take this away in order to get your attention so that you will worship me correctly, so that you will worship me truly, so that you will worship me as I've called you to worship me. And that may sound harsh. That may sound hard. You, you may lose a lot. Something tragic could happen. But really, to lose something temporary, to gain something eternal, is not a bad trade. But there's an alternative. You don't have to lose everything. The call is to live for God today. To lay everything down. Maybe you have a lot, maybe you have nothing. But to not be all about that. But to be about God as God has called us to be. That line, the the, the land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. They go from a lot to nothing. Verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, and with rumbling of chariots they leap on tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, Like warriors, they change. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march, each on his way, and they do not swerve from their paths. You can almost feel the rumble of that coming towards you, and the the anticipation and fear, again, of it coming your way. Verse 8, they do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, and they run upon the walls. They climb up in the houses. They enter through windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens trembled, the sun and the moon were darkened and the, straw, and the stars withdraw, their shining. Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceeding the great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? See, God says, I am causing this. And God gets out in front of it and says, listen, here's what's going to happen. God calls his shot and then God does it. And the purpose being this, I want you to know that when I do it, I'm doing it for you. Yeah, I'm doing it to you. I'm doing it for you also. I'm doing it so that you know it's me disciplining you back into obedience. Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And rend your hearts, not your garments, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. I want you to hear these words. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, he relents over disaster. These words are repeated all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. I found two in the Old Testament that I could put up that are just kind of repeat that. Exodus and Jonah, I think we have them on one slide. The Lord, the Lord, a, gra- a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's Exodus. The next one is Jonah. I know that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. And the reason I put those up, and there's a dozen places you can find this, both Old Testament and New Testament, is what you see is a consistency that there has been this phrase that has been repeated about God from generation to generation to generation. You see, the reason we do the New City Catechism, the reason we memorize is that the idea is to memorize truth, right? The same way we learn math, or at least I learned math. You learn your multiplication tables, two times one, two times two, two times three. You just memorize it so that when you're adding and subtracting something, you know the answer already. That's what the catechism is about. It's for adults, it's for kids, it's for big kids, little kids. But what we see in Scripture is they had something they memorized too. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. They had creeds. They had things that had been memorized. Paul speaks to Timothy and says, you remember this? I say this. And it's indented. It's this quote. They, he taught them that way. We learn that way. Even the prophets are reciting the things that the community memorized. That God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Right? They know who their God is. Verse 13, one more time, and rend your hearts, not your garments. In other words, tear your hearts, not your clothes. Remember they dressed in the sackcloth and they did this thing to show they were mourning? He says, well, don't show me so much that you're mourning. I want you to, I want you to tear your hearts more instead of the outside of you. He says, return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He'll stop the disaster that is coming. See, this is the gospel message from Joel to the people. Like this message has come to you over and over again. You're not listening. You're not changing. You're not turning back. You're not obeying. You're pressing on in disobedience. God has told you not to. You've done anyhow. God has told you to do this. You've gone the other direction. And you won't listen. You won't return. You won't repent. So here's what's going to happen. And then Joel throws in this gigantic but... But God really doesn't want this to happen. God doesn't enjoy the discipline like parents don't enjoy disciplining their kids. Right? The, the discipline is necessary. You see, the gospel message is that God created you, loves you, designed you, made you to be an obedient worshiper, a follower of Him. That's how you're made to be. But then sin in the world and in ourselves and our sin destroys us. And then we live in ways that are not how we're made to be. And so God, knowing that once we're broken, we could never fix it ourselves, God enters into human flesh in Christ. That Jesus, fully God and fully man, comes into human history. And he lives the life that you and I are called to live, but choose not to. And fail to, constantly. And he lives it so he can trade his perfect life for our broken lives. Jesus goes to the cross to pay the penalty to take the wrath of God on himself so that we don't have to. He goes and he gives his life for us. That if anyone is in Christ, Christ has paid his penalty. That when the day of the Lord comes or the day we die comes or whatever, that our sins are already paid for. But the gospel doesn't stop there. and Sadly, the American gospel tends to park there and land in heaven somewhere. But Jesus raises from the dead, giving us new life. That he gives us the power to live day in, day out, to be a different person, to overcome the world we live in. Jesus ascends back to heaven because he's God, because he's king, because he reigns, because one day he will return and reign here on earth. But until that time, he even places his spirit in us to lead us, to teach us, to guide us, and to join us together. We'll say this again at the service, but you remember, even last week, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God puts his spirit in us to unite us. Look around the room. We don't all look alike. We don't act alike. We don't have the same kind of jobs or the same kind of hobbies, but we have the same spirit inside us. That's what makes us a family. We have spiritual DNA through the spirit together. That we are drawn together. I'm making up spiritual DNA. Don't hold me to that. See, our job is to then live in the way that Christ has equipped us to be able to live. Pe- Peter, Jesus ascends, and, and Peter is, 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 is filled with the Holy Spirit, he's consumed with the Holy Spirit, he's praying, he's worshiping, people hear him, he's with about 120 people, he's with a, a group about this size, in a room, worshiping together, like us, and people outside hear them, and some think they're, they've been drinking too much, and some ask questions, and Peter goes out and he preaches the first gospel message in the New Testament church. And people hear this message and they ask him, okay, how do, we, how do we then follow Jesus? Here it is in Acts 2, if you have it. Acts 2, 37 and 38 says this. There we go. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And here's Peter's answer. So how do we become a follower of Jesus like you guys are? We want what you got. And he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will be filled with the Spirit. Right? There's his answer. What do we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You get what we get repent and be baptized. Right? Repent. Turn away from not following God, turn to following God. Right? Turn away from not following Jesus, being in Christ, and turn to following Jesus. That's what repent means. It literally means turn 180 degrees and run to Jesus, repent and be baptized. You see, the first thing we do when we come to faith, when we understand, okay, I'm now going to follow Jesus, when we do the first thing he said to do, we get baptized. We turn from our sin, we get baptized, and baptism is that joining a church community. You're baptized into a local church. If you've never been baptized, we would encourage you, come, talk to me or one of the other pastors or elders, and be baptized. In obedience to what Jesus said, in obedience to what Scripture says, and what Peter preaches, this should be the first step of obedience to Jesus. So we're back in Joel. There's this big crushing judgment that is coming because of the disobedience of the people. And then the prophet just can't help himself. And it's really, it's God's message through, and so God's telling him to say this. But, but God is so loving, merciful he desires to forgive you. In other words, it doesn't have to be this way. You have an opportunity. We have this opportunity. Verse 14, he says, Who knows whether he will turn and relent or turn and not pour out this judgment on you and leave a blessing behind him a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. Restore your worship. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room. Let the bride her chamber. Listen to what the answer is again. Hey, you're way off track. God's going to judge you. God's going to destroy Jerusalem because of your sin, because of your lack of repentance, because you don't want to obey. But God would love it if you repented, would love it if you returned. Here's how you do it. Consecrate a fast. Call a psalm assembly. Gather together to worship sacrificially. Seek God, not the things of this world. Gather together. But notice they're gathered together. He says, again, gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. See the repetition here? Put the kids, the infants, the adults, the elders, all in the same room gather everybody together, and let's pursue God together, he says. Here's the answer, go to church, right? Church isn't going to fix you, but together we can gather together, we can be the church together, we can seek God together in ways that we will never seek God on our own. Notice the value of the community. So why do modern day Christians not value gathering together with the people of God? Because we think we're individuals. Because we think that our relationship with God is ours, then we're only accountable to God and not to one another, which is not true. And when we get off track because we're alone, what does God say? Get back together. Gather together. I'll fast forward all the way to Hebrews, right? Late in the New Testament church writings. Do not give up meeting together, he tells them over and over. Do not give up meeting together. Because this is where we stay on track Verse 17, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? He says, let, the, let, let your pastors, let your elders, let your leadership, let them seek God on your behalf as well. Gather together, pray prayers of repentance and mourning and grieving over our sin. Gather together that God may relent, that God may change his mind, that God may not do What he has said he would do. Verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Now, this is where this prophet is different. He's going to give a positive outcome. So maybe this exists a little earlier when Hezekiah repents and they get 20 more years. Maybe this is what happens after they're conquered, exiled to Babylon and return, like we did last year in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But he says, here's what happens when the church gathers, when the people gather, when they return to God, when they worship God as God has called them to, he says, here's what happens. Verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land, like loved his land, loved his people, had pity on his people. Verse 19, the Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil. You will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Joel now pivots to a positive outcome. Here's destruction, utter destructions, locust army, whatever, utter destruction. But when you, the gathered people of God, get together and corporately, collectively, community, worship, return to God, God desires to not judge. He goes on, verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you. That's, by the way, what, that's the one line that makes me think it's about an army. I'll remove like the people of the north from you. And drive him into a parson desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea, and the stench of the smell, the foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, and be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures in the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree of the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. All the abundance that they had is returned and restored to them because they've repented. Verse 24. By the way, these two verses right here are the entire reason I want to do this book. Verse 24. Read along with me. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter my great army which I sent among you. Most of you know my story. If you don't, I'm gonna short form it really quick. I grew up in a broken home, not a Christian home, and that, that piece of the puzzle for me ended up pushing me into different directions. I, I made a ton of bad decisions. They started with early years of drug addiction, drug use, drug sales. That led to a lot of trouble. That led to not being kicked out of my house as a teenager. That led to living on the streets and crime and gangs and all that. That led to jails, but that led to prison. You can see the spiral, right? So the upside is this. About 25 years ago, in a prison cell, I prayed the most sincere prayer I've ever prayed to God. That God would save, just that God would change me. I didn't ask to get out. I didn't think I was getting out, by the way. I just asked that God would change me. God honored that promise. There's a lot of journey from here to there. There's a lot of stories to celebrate, a lot of means of grace in those moments. But I want to tell you about a particular one. And there's a lot of people that have been in prison and come to faith, and a lot of them become pastors. That's common. I think the uncommon thing about me is this. That life, I could tell you all the stories, but that life doesn't define me anymore. I'm not that guy. But I'm just miles from being that guy. But I got out just before I turned 30. So my final term in prison, I parole, I'd been writing my high school sweetheart. Many of you know my wife Lisa. We've known each other since we were little kids. We've dated on and off since we were teenagers. We reconnected. I had turned my life around, didn't look so good cuz I was still in prison, but I had changed. We got married about 6 months after I paroled. I turned 30 on my honeymoon. And I was re- I was just, at 30 years old, just, I had accumulated the life of what basically every 16 or 18 year old should have, plus a bunch of baggage, like three felonies, and countless misdemeanors, and bad credit, and debt, and you name it. I was like a teenager with baggage. And I remember turning 30, and I just, I prayed to God, okay, God, I'm so far away from what a 30 year old should be. And I'm married, and now I've got, to be a, I've got to be a husband, and I've got to do that. I don't know. And I was reading Joel 2, and he says this verse, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. He said, just stay the course. Just do what I've called you to do, and one day, you'll look back. It'll all make sense. Today at 54, I look like almost every other 54-year-old. Right today, I get to do what I love for a living, which is better than a lot of people. Right? There's a lot of people that work all their lives and never get to do things they love. I Own a home. I'm married to a wife for just under 25 years. Like I have a normal life because of God. You see, when I look back, I'm not looking at myself as behind everybody else anymore. See, God has restored the years that I tore up, that my sin destroyed. God has given them back to me. And it's like as if I never did them. That God has been so good to restore everything. And I am almost never, if you are a part of generations, you know this, I'm never the good example. Because I'm never the good example, right? But I can tell you God has been faithful to this. Here's the promise. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing right now, If you turn towards God and become obedient to God, he'll restore whatever you've messed up. He can fix whatever you've broken. He can return to you the years that the locust destroyed. That the discipline of God or the judgment of God, or in my case, it was my decisions that destroyed my life. God can give them all back. I want you to hear that today. And we as a church have to wrestle with the fact that we sit kind of on the fence of our faith. And for that, we will be disciplined. But when we dive in, God will restore everything that we need. So each week we talk about how do we we apply that to our lives? I'm just gonna use my example today, my takeaway from doing this is I wanna remember to tell people more how good God has done, how faithful God has been to restore everything, to, to, to fix all that I messed up. So if you're here and you're, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, if that's you, you need to you know, continually look. Here's my challenge to you. Would you continually look at the state of the church and be the ones who lead the church towards God? For those of you that are less mature in your faith, whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades or you're brand new, understand that this is a life of repentance, that living for Jesus, you never arrive. You're always living in repentance. We're always drifting one way or the other. It's a life filled with repentance, returning to God. If you are not a follower of Jesus yet, if you've never pursued Jesus, given him that first place in your life, I want to say this, God's judgment and discipline is real, but also real is his goal of restoring you to how you were made to be. His grace and his mercy is just as real as his judgment and discipline. For parents and kids, your job is to teach your family that we can pursue things in this world, good jobs, family education, joy, whatever, but never at the cost of our faith, never as a priority over our faith. Would you pray with me? As we talk about this, we see this beautiful promise in the middle of Joel. God, we know the church is not all it should be today. And we know that we, we place you, faith, church, second, third, fourth, when convenient. The church in America is broken, Lord. It barely looks like the church in the Bible. I just confess, Jesus, you are not a priority often in the church today. Our, even our church. We talk about this a lot. We are so saturated in the world we live in. And we look more like our world than we do like you. Help us to repent of that. Help us, as those who have been around a while, to lead in that. Help those who are coming to faith, who are newer to faith, to learn that. Help parents teach children that. Help, help children understand that the greatest value, the greatest thing we have is you. The greatest loss is loss of worship. That When we, we lose our relationship with you, no matter what else we gain, we lose everything. Jesus, bring us, Generations Family Church, bring us to where you would have us to be. Let us be a light in our community. Let us be a light to others. Help us to return to you in real ways. Help us to gather meaningfully. Mourn and lament the distance between us and you. Help us to study scripture deeply that we might understand what it looks like to be a local church. Help us to raise our children to value their faith above all else, Lord. That that will never depart from them. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So take a minute, turn to somebody around you. If you're a guest here, somebody around you will will help you with this. But what is one takeaway from the message today that you want to act on in the coming week? So what's something you learned that you want to do or you want to apply to your life in the week to come? you got a couple minutes.